very first recorded video recorded episode of Please Expand. Uh, I'm Ahelius, and my good friend Jay is here with me today. Hi, Jay. Hello. How are you doing? Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me again. You look a bit tired. No, no, I just love ah. it. <laughs> <laughs> good. So today we're going to interview Robin Dunbar uh, on his new book, How Religion Involved and Why It Endures published by Pelican. And today's interview is really going to be all about Robin's thesis about the evolutionary substructures that are necessary for religion and why religion is a very useful thing for us to have, uh, how it develops, how it falls apart as well. Some wonderful chapters on schisms, cults and sects. And ultimately, why it endures, despite uh, appearances in our modern day world, that things are becoming more and more secular. That's probably one of Robin's most enticing theses, that despite how things might appear, we're never really going to shake off religion, or what he calls the mystical stance. So, without any further ado, let's, let's get to Robin Dunbar and uh, how religion evolved. Welcome to Please Expand. My guest today is Robin Dunbar, anthropologist, evolutionary psychologist, and an expert in primate behavior. And today we will be discussing his most recent book, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Robin, thank you for coming on the podcast. As we were preparing for this interview, we, we looked at your previous publications, and at least from the titles of the books, this seems to be the first time you've written a book on religion from an evolutionary perspective. You've written on primate behavior, human evolution, and even friendship in 2021. But what prompted you to write a book about the evolution of religion? Well, this is not the first time, uh, to be honest, um, that I've written on religion. It's the first book. Um, but there is essentially a, a whole chapter in one of my earlier books on human evolution, um, pointing out that religions played an important role in the course of human evolution. And I have written... Um, at least a couple of, um, well, maybe three or four papers, actually, um, journal articles on, on the evolution of religion. So it's, it's by no means a new topic, but yes, this is the first full-length treatment. And what was it that you thought needed to be said that wasn't said before? Well, it, it, what prompted... This particular book, in some sense, was um, a large Templeton grant project that we'd had looking at the relationship between the social brain and the evolution of religion as a primarily as a social bonding mechanism in the course of human evolution. Um, and part of my commitment to that project was actually to write this book. So <laughs> there it is. Um, tick that box. Um, but, but the issue substantively underpinning that really was the fact that it had become increasingly clear to me that religion had played an important role, uh, not in the way that most approaches to the nature of religion, the psychology of religion, the sociology of religion um, have adopted, uh, which in some sense is kind of focused, if you like, on beliefs 
um, rather than anything else. Um, but th there was a whole story hidden under there, which was about the role of religion as part and parcel of the toolkit that humans have evolved to bond their increasingly large social groups. So the problem I've been interested in for a very long time is how do, well, any animals, but particularly primates and, and humans, bond their social groups to keep them coherent? Because the problem in evolutionary terms is not really things like cooperation and altruism, pro-sociality, which is what everybody's tended to focus on. It's actually just coordination. It's just keeping a group together. If you can keep the group together, you get cooperation and pro-sociality for free. It's not a big mystery. Whereas they've been extremely difficult to explain in evolutionary terms uh, hitherto. Uh, required all sorts of contortions <laughs> and jumping through hoops to get cooperation and or altruism to, to evolve in, in, in social groups. But you just get it for free if you can solve the coordination problem. The coordination problem is addressed to something entirely different. It's um, how to protect yourselves from uh, predation and or um, another form of predators, namely the guys who live in the next door valley, raiders, in other words. And that's kind of the big problem that human evolution increasingly began to throw at our species as population sizes and densities increased uh, into recent times. So how do, you, how, how do these animals keep these large groups together, which in other species will just fragment and, uh, and disperse? And we'd been looking at a number of different um, social processes, things like laughter and singing and dancing and feasting and, and storytelling and things like that. And the, the one kind of... Um, peg in the in the jigsaw that was missing in this we thought was was religion so it seemed uh, the right time to have a serious go at trying to understand the role that religion plays in social bonding that's fascinating yeah and we'll get to discuss more i think about this as we go along uh so just to start off with let's begin with the most basic concept of your book religion uh so we tend to imagine religion as this <laughs> There's one thing that has remained unchanged throughout human history. Sure, particular deities and beliefs change, but what we understand as religion is broadly the same. But from the outset, you draw a distinction between two kinds of religion, immersive or shamanic and doctrinal religions. Uh, could you say a bit about how they're distinct, but also how, despite being distinct, that they're also part of the same unifying concept of religion? Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, religion has been the most difficult concept, topic, noun to define, I think. Nobody agrees in among all the disciplines that work on evolution. I don't think there's anybody that agrees with anybody else how you should define it. So I simply adopted the old philosopher's trick of saying, well, we kind of know what it means. This is a severally and jointly true, true definition. Uh, there's a kind of generic thing that if you wander around the world, you're going to, going to go and say, oh, yeah, that's a religion. Um, but not necessarily every religion has all these uh, defining characteristics. But broadly speaking, you know, they have at least some. So this is a severally and jointly 
um, uh, true definition of, of what we mean by religion. And that is, really it boils down to a kind of belief in a transcendental spirit world of some kind um, that we can access directly through our minds, particularly so in the context of trance, uh, trance states. It, it, it's a kind of ecstatic experience. And this was kind of backing off one step further, was kind of the pitch of the book, that everybody is kind of concentrated on the belief side of it, but nobody joins a religion because of a belief. <laughs> they join a religion because of some emotional, uh, raw feels kind of um, experience they have at some point. Um, you know, it might be because they've been brought up in a religion from the age of zero and just imbibed it all. But still what you're imbibing is not the belief so much as the kind of raw feels of what it is to be um, a member of that religion, have those beliefs. Now, a lot of that has to do with the kind of rituals that all religions have in some form. And uh, if you like, my pitch was to say, well, actually, you know, if you look at the rituals of religion generically, they all trigger the endorphin system in the brain. And the endorphin system is in the brain is what underpins primate social bonding, primate group cohesion at the end of the day. And so, you know, there's a marker already that that that, that is what's involved. But then if you kind of look at the history of religion, what becomes very clear, and this has been kind of known about for oh, a century or more, really, is that these kind of doctrinal religions that we're very familiar with now, the world religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, etc., etc., are very sophisticated, uh, theologically very sophisticated constructions. They're, they're not the underpinning raw feels component of religion. What that involves is something much more I hesitate to use the word primitive, but it will do. Um, a much more primitive experience of something that you can't put into words. And, and that sense of religion is absolutely universal. You see it all the religions of hunter-gatherer societies where they don't have formal gods, perhaps they don't even have gods at all. They just have spirits that kind of occupy um, uh, the world alongside us in some way. The spirit of the mountain or the spirit of the... Uh, spring or the spirit of the river these kind of things um, and those sentiments are still there in all the doctrinal religions they haven't gone away what's happened is something else has been bolted on top of that and that's the the kind of doctrinal uh, component so we've got two things to explain really there's this basic sense of religiosity or this capacity to feel religious sentiments that makes us believe in um, a spirit world of some kind or other. And then historically, the gradual formalization of that into doctrinal religions of increasing complexity. Initially, ones that involve many gods um, that are formally recognized and mostly to whom you have to um, make sacrifices, otherwise they tend to take a very dim view, but they're not really interested in people, humans, as, as um, uh, being of any importance other than to provide them with 
burnt sacrifices of various kinds or libations of various kinds. And a lot of those early doctrinal religions are very much of that kind. But then there's a later phase where you get the kind of emergence of what you might think of as super doctrinal religions, the axial age religions, as they're sometimes called, the world religions as we have them now, which are um, religions which have been revealed to us through some charismatic prophet or other. So they, they're quite often referred to as the revealed religions. And that is a key component of them. They're very different in that sense because most of them tend to be um, monotheistic in some form, even if they have, have many gods, there's still a sort of top god who uh, rules the roost and uh, takes a dim view uh, if we don't behave well. And, and that's the big difference with the, these kind of revealed religions. They're much more focused on the good behavior of humans. Um, uh, and uh, God takes a distinct interest in how well you behave. Um, unlike the kind of uh, more general earlier doctrinal um, multiplex of gods who tend to to be pretty disinterested in how humans behave and usually behave very badly themselves, I may say, if you think of the Greek gods, the classical Greek gods or the Roman gods. You know, by and large, they're, you know, swilling wine and <laughs> having fun in, in, in heaven. Um, just very briefly, actually, uh, what is the general idea behind why you get this shift from doctrinal to, as you just said, super doctrinal religions. Um, what's what's sort of going on there? Why is that necessary? Okay. So, so this is the sort of second uh, parallel theme of the book, if you like, and that is that this is all about um, demographic effects, that the great problem primates have had collectively throughout their ev evolutionary history is trying to maintain these coordinated, cohesive, bonded social groups in a context where they need to live in, for ecological reasons, perfectly conventional ecological reasons, to live in ever bigger groups, or at least in some lineages. It's not necessarily true of all lineages, but those kind of uh, moving into new kinds of habitats where the threats they're facing, the external environmental threats they're facing, are increasing in magnitude, their solution is to, to live in bigger and bigger groups. Indeed, that's the only way they can manage those kind of habitat changes. Um, and that what you see in, in the context of um, the evolution of religion is simply that uh, dynamic written um, uh, in ever bigger scale. So that if uh, what we think anyway it, it has happened is, you know, probably until about two million years ago, we were doing bonding our social groups the way that all primates bond their social group, which is social grooming. Right? Triggers the endorphin system, makes you feel very warm and cozy towards the, the folk you do it with and, and very trusting of them, and that creates a sense of bonding and belonging. Um, the, from about two million years ago, the appearance of archaic, uh, early Homo, the first species of our genus, um, the shift from the Australopithecines into the genus Homo, if you like. Group size, that's when brain size starts to kick off, and, and that's a marker for group size. And what you see, seems to see kicking in, we think at that point, is various additional means. So this is the same story 
Um, they're still doing social grooming the way primates have always done. Uh, but what you're doing is adding in successively a series of extra mechanisms which ramp up um, uh, the effects and allow you to, to, to bond larger groups. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is we still do social grooming. You know, it's usually referred to soft touch in the uh, science literature these days. Um, we spend a lot of time touching and stroking and patting and hugging um, those with whom we have close relationships. You know, we don't do it with all and sundry. We don't do it with strangers. Even the Greeks don't do it with strangers. <laughs> you can do it with your family and friends. Um, so you, you can kind of see this stuff going on before your eyes, but it's going on below the radar of consciousness is the problem because we're so language and vision dominated. Um, we kind of do it subconsciously, but but it's there and we, we're constantly doing it in the course of conversations with with people. And then, um, you know, so so what's happening is you're adding on to that what seems to be laughter and that seems to be the oldest of these steps. And then secondarily, probably about 500,000 years ago, singing and dancing and probably singing, not necessarily with words, more kind of chorusing or humming communal dancing, Greek dan dancing, absolutely perfect example of this. And then with the evolution of modern language as we have it, um, that's to say uh, really high level sophisticated um, uh, language, you get the rituals of re or religion kicking in, feasting, um, where you can sit around mm -hmm. talking while you eat and drink, and uh, the, the telling of particularly emotionally wrenching stories as well. But those come in late and, and uh, probably only with our species, the, the evolution of our, our own species, Homo sapiens, at least at that level of sophistication. Um, but again, it's just kind of adding in extra mechanisms which allow you to ramp up the endorphin production in order to be able to bond ever larger uh, groups of individuals. So I actually have a question before, obviously, before we, we look more in depth at your view, it might be also interesting to have um, an idea of other approaches to religion as well, as we were discussing, right? So, um, for example, you introduce the field of cognitive anthropology, pretty hmm. much, uh, that has its own theory. Uh, could you explain what is peculiar about how cognitive anthropology theorizes about the development of religion? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's happened is that sort of a, 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 a growing together of some streams of psychology with some streams of anthropology produced this um, subdiscipline known as the cognitive science of religion, um, in, in right. using the term science here to kind of indicate that it's not just anthropology and it's not just psychology. Um, and a lot of that is really focused on the idea that religion is this, the, the world around you kicking in bits of the na natural yeah. design of the human mind in ways which are themselves actually unnatural. So, the, for example, the classic cases, you know, you hear a, a leaf rustling or, or a rustling noise in, 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 the, um, in the forest as you walk through the forest in the dark. And you're kind of predisposed to believe that this, that must be caused by something. Um, and, and our best guess is always uh, humans have done it. So, you know, you, you, you very quickly uh, come to 
um, perhaps your first guess is there must be a human there and then you discover there isn't a human there so it must be some kind of spirit or other that that's caused the rustling of the leaves right um and this is uh, you know this is an unintended outcome if you like of the design of the human mind which is perfectly functional in other more normal contexts um so it's 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 premised on the idea that really that religion is non-functional in an evolutionary sense it has no benefit and that's spun off the observation of course that um, religions quite often by no means always but quite often prevail on people to behave in ways which are counterproductive in fitness terms evolutionary fitness right. terms so they you know your religious beliefs might encourage you to be uh, celibate and go and live as an ascetic in the deserts of Egypt and not reproduce. Uh, or it might encourage you to go and become a martyr um, in, in the um, interests of your beliefs, as it were. And these are perceived as being non-adapted or maladapted um, actions uh, and therefore reflect the fact that religion or religious belief religiosity more generally um, is a kind of maladapted outcome of stuff that evolved for um, other perfectly um, sensible and, and, and functional reasons. And I suppose in, in that sense, I mean, the, the, you know, that's, that's the kind of, in many ways, the dominating um, uh, view uh, in a major part of of um, uh, the, the world of people interested in religion. The, you know, the, there's an anthrop a mainstream anthropological view which just believes that religion is a reflection of our society, um, for example. And, of course, there are sociologists who take a sociological view of religion who tend to see it in terms of, I don't know, domination of um, society by a particular group, whether it be the elite, whether it be men trying to dominate women or whatever. Um, uh, you know, there, are, there are lots of these other kind of speci more specific approaches to explaining religion in the various different disciplines that you see. And it, again, in, in archaeology, their, their view is really premised on whether you can see evidence for symbolism related to an afterlife and that's usually taken to be formal burials as opposed to just chucking bodies down down deep holes that, that that's been laid out that perhaps there are grave goods there so that's their marker but that's because they're terrified of making claims on the basis of no evidence at all which is always you know when you have so little evidence that's kind of always the risk of course you build a big story and i suppose you know they, they're conscious of the fact that archaeology has had, to a degree, they've has had that kind of background where, where people have erected these grand schemes of history and uh, social evolution, which um, turned out to be just figments of their imagination because it's based on like uh, two brass buttons found in some burial chamber or whatever it may be. Um, or a bit of bone or you know here or there so so you know there there are these kind of 
different views of religion. I, I'm perfectly happy with all of them. I don't think any of them are particularly wrong. Um, I, I just think they're looking at one tiny little corner of the big story. And the big story, in the end, is all about the role of um, um, religion as a device for increasing social bonding in the community in order to allow bigger communities to exist. And this really goes back in many ways to a kind of um, anthropological, sociological roots, because this is Durkheim's view of um, religions and, and religious rituals that, that, that you know, they are, we, we engage or uh, uh, traditional societies engage in these religious rituals, which often involve dancing and singing and going into trance um, because they create this sense of social bonding. So it's this kind of, you know, a view, you might argue, it goes back well over a century. Um, uh, but it has, and although actually, although that was kind of very popular um, within anthropology as a view, I, I kind of get the impression it's sort of lost purchase in, in perhaps the last half century. Um, you know, pe you know, people acknowledge it. That's Durkheim's view. It's, it must be very old-fashioned. <laughs> Something more exciting we can say. Well, guys, I'm sorry, <laughs> Durkheim was right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but obviously, you think your evolutionary account is perhaps closer to the truth uh, for why we have religion. You, you don't think it's a maladaptive trait. You do think that. The the fact that it confers our, the fact that it gives us a better bonding uh, ability does actually confer uh, benefits, survival benefits, and maybe even yep. uh, other kinds of benefits. Yes, absolutely so. And indeed, um, what I would argue is we now understand why Durkheim was right. Um, Durkheim, you know, <laughs> it was an idle speculation, you might say, because it was just based on observation of a few, I think, mainly Australian uh, uh, um, tribes, um, kind of corroborees, their, their sort of get-togethers, um, uh, um, which they had sort of lots of singing and dancing going on, uh, which they would do only once in a while. Um, and it, it, you know, Durkheim's theory, if you like, was kind of based on casual observations that supported his view. But I think it, what he didn't understand is why this works. And I think what we can now say is that we understand why the rituals of the religion produce the bonding effects that they do and that they really do so. We can show that experimentally. Um, but secondarily, um, I, I, I'm a great believer in taking a very broad-based, multidisciplinary view. Um, I blame this on my training as a philosopher, I'm afraid. The, the one big lesson I learned from doing my, my first degree <laughs> in philosophy uh, was ignore other people's disciplinary boundaries. You know, if it's interesting, find out about it, put it all together. Music. And I think yeah. the, the lesson I've learned from that is how to fit different disciplines, um, perspectives together in a way that is a bit like sitting in front of an enormous jigsaw. If you like, the world out there is just a lot of jigsaw pieces. 
And the task we have is trying to fit these jigsaw pieces together. Well, you can kind of do it in two ways. Uh, and this, I suppose, goes back to the whole story of scientific revolutions. You know, you can be a specialist or you can be a generalist. The specialist, which is most of sciences, um, and I use the term sciences here in the, uh, a very broad uh, original meaning of just knowledge, um, uh, you know, tend to be specialists. They beaver away in a little corner of the jigsaw uh, table, as it were, and just do that little corner. And I think if you kind of take a bigger picture and, and can work in various different parts of the, the, the jigsaw table, then eventually a much more coherent picture emerges. And what's more, you can now see why um, you're getting the picture that you're getting in, let's say, the bottom left-hand corner because it, of how it fits together with the, um, the other parts of the jigsaw. So the whole thing becomes self-reinforcing. And I, I, my view is it just makes it much more difficult for other people to prove you wrong because it's very easy to prove one particular <laughs> hypothesis that somebody's come up with is wrong. You just have to show some some evidence against it. It is much more difficult to yeah. prove um, a hypothesis wrong where that hypothesis is is absolutely embedded within a whole spider's web of um, other factors um, that are kind of mutually supporting because you basically have to prove that physics is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can I can agree with that. That's certainly how I felt as I was reading the book. And besides, it's more interesting, you know. I mean, it's much more interesting to kind of go, oh, look, this actually explains some stuff in history that we kind of never have connected up uh, with with um, this particular topic, whatever that particular topic may be. In this case, it happened to be religion. But um, you can start to sort of map together the archaeology and the history and the physiology and the neurobiology and the social psychology and the anthropology and so on, all into this big unified <clears throat> jigsaw on the table. Which, and that's much more satisfying because you can look at the big picture and go, wow. Well, talk, talking about uh, jigsaw puzzles, I think one of, one of, for me one of the pieces that was very interesting about your particular research, uh, the fact that the, you do talk about the mystical stance, and and I want to talk, you know, I, I th which I thought um, was something to be talked about now in the introduction to this conversation, because I've always like, what is the mystical stance, and and what is its role in the religious belief? Because um, it must be quite tricky, you know, being such a broad uh, piece uh, to some extent, you could approach it from different. Angles. Which one was the one you chosen, and, and why? Ah, well, I, I, I should add as an addendum to all this, is that if you if you take the route I have taken, <laughs> of being very broad based and trying to integrate all these other disciplines and show how they cohere together, you just end up being everybody's enemy. <laughs> uh, <okay>. <laughs> 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 because. Because no discipline wants to be associated with any other discipline because they have the perfect truth. Mm. Right. I see. Um, yep. so, <laughs> I see. So it, it, in, in this sense, I mean, I, I kind of pinched the term, um, well, I suppose I, I invented the term mystical stance, um, slightly tongue-in-cheek uh, here, but, but to kind of reflect the fact that underlying 
religion is this all religions is this sense of something mysterious that we can't quite put our fingers on um because it's something we feel this is a raw feels experience not a cognitive conscious um language-based experience so it's something we can't put into words very well and that in a, in a very crude um neuropsychology terms is because it's something that's going on on the right side of the brain which is mostly where emotional experiences are being handled whereas language is on the left side and yes okay there are lots of interconnections between the left and the right hand side of course but actually the connection between the language modules and the emotional feelings modules are pretty pretty poor and we often struggle to express these emotions in language. It's why we admire poets so well, because we feel that they can do that translation extremely well. So you've got this kind of sense of something you can't quite put into words, so you can't formalize it to, as an experience, but you, you, right. you have this experience, it's very meaningful to you, and other people turn out to have the same experience. So you have, you know, you know it's not just uh, you. Um, uh, of course, that depends on having some kind of language to be able to communicate about these things. But it's still you know, this this problem of trying to formulate it in 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 hard nosed propositions, if you like. That, that's very very difficult. So it's that sense of mystery that comes out of that. And I think this is this is the experience of all. The diff many different practices where which are based on meditation or trance in some form they, they are across the world and across cultures they're surprisingly similar um, in how they're uh, experienced um, astonishingly so really you know they, they all have the sense of going into um, through a tunnel uh, uh, of light uh, and coming out the other side and and, and all of them have you know, particularly in the in in small scale societies, have the same sense that it is very dangerous out there on the other side of the wall, <laughs> the garden wall in this spirit world, uh, because the way into it uh, uh, is very very small. It's often seen as a kind of hole at the base of the tree of knowledge, the tree of life. And your problem is to find your way out. And, and often you can't find your way out. Or there are kind of wicked spirits in, in, the other, in the spirit world which try to prevent you finding your way out. And of course, the evidence is clear, you know, if you in these societies doing these kind of activities, because some people never come back, right? They go into trance and they die. And that's because their spirit, their soul has not been able to find the way back in. Uh, to our world and, and uh, reunite with their body. So um, this is perfectly good empirical science, you know, um, uh, not to be sniffed at at all. It's a very reasonable conclusion. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, it, you can see how it generates then a kind of um, yeah, further beliefs in, in, in terms of, you know, ancestors maybe who act as good spirits and, and, and help you find the way back out because obviously ancestors are interested in your continued survival and, and uh, promoting um, their own descendants' um, uh, survival and so on. So all these kind of things wrapped up into that. But it's, 
it, you know, the, what I think, well, just to back up one step uh, in terms of why this happens, we're coming around to the idea, this is not a new idea, it was proposed back in the 80s, but um, I don't think they knew enough about how these things actually work to be able to do anything with it, and it kind of, the idea died out. But it's become increasingly clear to me that this is the product of endorphins, that, that in, you know, if you really ramp up the endorphin system, uh, which is what seems to happen when you go into trance, then, then you, it, you know, it, it's, it's a psycho-active uh, um, uh, um, state. It's a bit like taking any of the many infamous um, psychedelic-type drugs that um, humans have experimented with, uh, um, over time and, and my view on this is you know there are two ways of getting into trance there's the cheap and cheerful one which is not very good but does the job which is taking psychoactive substances which you know humans have been doing yeah. since forever you know all around the eastern mediterranean going back five six thousand years there's traces of psychoactive drugs all over the place from opium to morning glory to um uh, all these kind of things, um, uh, marijuana, et cetera, et cetera, being used. And, you know, other things in, 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 in other continents, so mescaline in, in, in Central and South America. Um, but they're a, kind of, they're a kind of sledgehammer way of doing it. So they, the effects tend to be a bit unpleasant. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, I mean, um, the reason why I asked this is because I actually made me think a lot of uh, a book that was published long ago as well. Uh, the expectation effect by David Romson, and uh, one of the initial uh, in the initial chapters is this fascinating story of a group of immigrants. Um, I can't remember specifically what um, where they came from, but the place where they came from had this legend that those who left the country would be haunted by the spirit and and be killed during their sleep. Um, and I think it was a, a recent. I don't know if you heard about that paper. Uh, that paper that. Follow these people, and this uh, this group of people moved. I think they moved naturally to the U.S. And of the fifteen people who moved, they all had this. They would they would sit at night and talk about you know the ways in which this spirit was haunting them. And oddly enough, the majority of them died in their sleep on the same day. Um, and the research, obviously, the the science behind it, something to do with with that with the impact that these stories has in our psyche and, our, and how our bodies react to it. Um, and, and that's why I thought about, you know, I, yeah. when I read about your yeah. mystical sunset, you know, this, this yeah. is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, now you've raised this, uh, and uh, you did actually ask the question a little earlier um, in a roundabout way, and I never answered it. And that is one of the byproducts of the endorphin system is that it triggers yeah. the immune system. So it triggers particularly the natural killer cells. And the natural killer cells are part of the white blood cell system. Target, in particular, viruses and some cancers and maybe other stuff too. Um, there's, there's biochemical evidence for at least those two. And so you can see now immediately a mechanism for whereby the well-attested health benefits of religion might arise so the kind of cognitive science of people science of religion people say there are no benefits to religion at all the answer is actually there are if you look at the the the, the literature there's lots of evidence that um uh, religious people you know suffer less illness and and um 
recover more quickly when they are ill and and and, and have longer lives and and so on and generally speaking happy happier um not all of them some of them some of them are very very miserable and go and live in deserts but by and large i mean you think of the kind of charismatic um uh, evangelical religions and Christianities. It's very exciting, you know. They've always got happy, smiley faces. You know why? Because they're <laughs> on in an endorphin high <laughs> time because of all this singing and dancing and, and stuff they do. So high all day. you know, the, <laughs> you know, oh, the, the, the the endorphins are amazing. I mean, they're designed to to um, uh, be part of the brain's pain management system. They're opiates. Opioids, you know, the, the word is a contraction of endogenous morphine because chemically they're very similar to morphine. They give you the same effects, except that they're not destructively addictive in the way that, that morphine and other uh, artificial um, opiates are. You know, so so you get the same lift from them, the same sense of happiness and, and warmth and everything's at peace and with the world and, and everything is cozy and so on. Um, and it, that's the sense of, of, you know, aside from giving giving you the best antidepressant medicine you can ever have, and it's free, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's make, giving you this sense of bonding, which is, I argue, is ultimately what it's all about. But as a byproduct, what you're getting for free yeah. are these kind of health benefits, which, which are very real. I mean, it's clear not only are, on the whole, religious people happier and... and uh, can accept what the you know world throw insists on throwing at you in a more relaxed and and coping sort of way, but also there are direct um, health benefits. But the health benefits are not the primary reason um, these processes evolved. They're they're kind of secondary benefits. What what evolutionary biologists refer to as uh, evolutionary windows of opportunity or windows of evolutionary opportunities so things that only come into right. play and have an effect once the system has has evolved for other reasons so you, you've been talking a lot about the the health benefits of religion and that's obviously one of the things that people do think about when they think about why religion exists why it's developed uh, and you go through a number of these other uh, approaches to understanding the development of religion and I just really wanted to focus on one that I think it was a very interesting argument that you make in the book and perhaps is the most common one that we hear every day uh, probably originating from Hobbes's critique of religion in the Leviathan so religion as the oppression of the many by an elite or bias an elect group of priests uh, you make uh, like I said a, a very interesting argument against this uh, could you just say a bit why you think it's not a successful explanation for the origin of religion. That's primarily uh, because it seems to me religion is a very, very small scale phenomenon. You know, it evolved in a context where we were living in extremely small scale groups, um, essentially communities of 150 people living, well, not even living together, actually. It's hunter-gatherers. That community of 150 people is dispersed into a number of smaller bands. It's the bands of and anything between 15 and 50 people um, that actually live together at the same campsite. But they're part of a distinct community and they can kind of move from one ba band to another very easily within the same community. And yeah, there are kind of mm -hmm. higher level uh, 
organizations that emerge off the top of that, so mega bands and, and beyond that, the tribe as a whole. Um, but the important community structure is really th this intermediate level at, at about 150 people, something in the order of a common, commonly known as a clan or maybe a regional community or something like that. Religions evolved in that context to create this sense of belonging. We, we all belong to the same group um, and we'll all support each other, as it were. Um, here, you, all you need is essentially the shamanic phase, this immersive phase of trance dancing and trance experiences. You don't need um, complicated theologies at, at this stage. It's just a raw feels experiential thing. What I think happened is, is in in the Holocene, the the Neolithic, when you started to get people cramming together in settlements, then you had real problems. And that required something stronger, if you like, to essentially, not to put too fine a word on it, stop everybody murdering each other. Otherwise, you end up in a Pitcairn Island problem. If you remember the famous story of Pitcairn Island, the mutineers on the bounty, you know, they all fled to mm -hmm. the furthest point that any of them knew about because they knew the Royal Navy would be after them. Um, and one of them remembered once seeing a map, on a map, this place called Pitcairn Island, way out in the middle of the South Pacific, nowhere near anything else. Nobody would ever find it. And they found it. They managed to find it, and they settled there. And when the, the Navy then spent 10 years trying to track them down, they were not going to let them get away with a mutiny like this. Um and when they eventually found them, uh, you know, the original community was, it wasn't hugely big, but it was kind of pretty much 50-50 men and women. The women were all from Tahiti, which is where they'd fled from. Um, and the men were partly the mutineers and then some uh, Tahitan men that had come with them. Well, you know, after 10 years, there was one man left <laughs> because the others had killed each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> most mostly allegedly mostly over fights over the women but you know the fact is you know if you're living in cramped conditions and can't just wander off you know the, the merit of the hunter-gatherer um, way of life is that if you get fed up with the family family in the little hut next to you in the camp you can go and go I'm going to go and live with the the Joneses over in the other campsite on the other <laughs> side of the mountains. You know, I can't bear living with you anymore. Well, you know, on a small island like Pitcairn, <laughs> I just can't do that. So what I think you have in the context of the, um, and we can show that this is true of hunter-gatherers, uh, living hunter-gatherers you know, in comparative analysis. Homicide rates just increase linearly with the size of the community, the, the size of the camping camp groups that, that they have, the, the living groups that they have. It's absolutely um, astonishing. So much so that hunter-gatherers could not live in camp groups with more than about 90 members because at that point, every single death of an adult would be homicide. And that group would not be able to wow. replace itself. Uh, the mortality rate is from it. So, the largest groups you see for camp camp groups, living groups in hunter-gatherers 
is about 50 people. And at that point, 50% of mortality in adults is homicide due to homicide. That looks like the upper limit that you can cope with and still live long enough to reproduce, or some people live long enough to reproduce and, you know, sort of keep the, um, keep the community going. So the problem is, if, mm. if you're going to cram everybody together, particularly your community of 150 people, into a very small space as a settlement, which is what was happening sort of around about eight, 9,000 years ago, the, the, the start of the Neolithic, um, you've got a serious problem. Everybody thinks it was farming, you know, that was, that was the problem. Ah, farming was a trivial problem to solve. And anyway, hunter-gatherers, we know from the archaeology, hunter-gatherers were farming before they settled in, in, in villages like this for a couple of thousand years beforehand. They were, they were engaging in, in small-scale farming. The, the problem was how to manage uh, the fractiousness that you get when you have large numbers of people living in groups. And, and that's why I think the doctrinal religions became important and why they appeared at that point. Because this is the point at which you suddenly start to see the archaeological evidence for these kind of things. So this is evidence for religious spaces, what look like specialised religious spaces, temples, if you like. Um, you, you, you start to see... Um, kind of unnecessary kinds of artwork which which don't even count as artwork you know they they look much more like religious iconography if you like and and evidence of priesthoods and hierarchical structures in in, in the society rather than being egalitarian and i think what became necessary at that point was to have some okay if you think of the hunter-gatherer form of shamanic religions as being bottom up you know i commit myself to the community because of my feelings, uh, my experiences in trance and so on, make me feel a member of the community, I'm bonded to the community. Um, and that that is only work good enough to work up to a certain point. Uh, what, what the doctrinal religions did was introduce a top-down discipline-based mechanism in which you now have gods who wag their finger at you when you misbehave, right? Yeah. And especially so, so in the revealed religions of the Axial Age, because they now have this uh, monotheistic God who takes a particular interest in the good behavior of, of humans. Um, so here now you have what's, what's sometimes referred to as the policeman in the sky effect. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't know what you guys get up to on Saturday night round the back of the bike sheds, you know, you're misbehaving all the time. Um, <laughs> but I can't, I can't, I can't accost you and say, come on guys, we really don't like what you're doing behind the bike sheds. Um, you know, smoking all these weird stuff and you know, having fun with the girls and all this kind of thing. Um, uh, we, we, we disapprove of that kind of stuff. We shouldn't be doing it because I've got no evidence, you know, but I can say to you, listen, I may not be able to see uh, what you're up to behind the bike sheds there, but there is somebody who can, who sees everything <laughs> <laughs> because he's om omniscient. <laughs> so you can't get away with this. You know, you've just got to behave better. So you have this kind of, um, and of course that offers you an opportunity to have a kind of, if you like, a priestly elite who can kind of impose um, real punishments in the here and now rather than, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing for me to say, you know, eternal damnation awaits you <laughs> for your bad behavior. 
um, because you know, you guys are just going to say and. <laughs> We like it, you know. We don't mind. <laughs> and what proof do you have that eternal damnation awaits us anyway? So you kind of need to have some punishment introduced in the here and now, um, just just to remind you what punishment in the eternal damnation looks like. Um, so I think what that is is a reflection of the fact that. Um, there's a natural tendency for human groups to develop hierarchical structures as they increase in size. We've shown that with modeling. Um, but if you look at all small scale societies, um, as they, as the kind of cohesive community, however, however, that's actually instantiated in, in, in physical form increases in size, uh, the size of the village, if you like, or the size of the town then things seem naturally to become increasingly hierarchical. And one reason for that seems to be that it just works better. We've shown in modeling that uh, social networks, which have these hierarchical structures, are much more efficient in the way they work than ones which are free-for-alls and just depend on word of mouth. So having somebody at the top, a small elite, that imposes discipline um, seems to increase the cohesion that you get in 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 human social groupings anyway so that i think is is the origins of this it's it's this it it's the old idea of the marriage of church and state which you know people have muttered about um for a long long time probably a better part of a century really um but i think here's you know some clear evidence that that really does work and if you look at the archaeology, that's what you see. You know, you see evidence for elites starting to emerge in these very early c cities or even pre-cities because they're not that big. You know, we're only talking about uh, you know, 10,000 people maximum, um, sometimes less. Um, um, but, you know, that that's a very large number of people to manage. And, of course, in the end, it, you know... It, Hobbes would have told you, you, know, you need some laws and courts and judges to keep keep the lid on all this, uh, otherwise, you know, fractiousness. Yeah, otherwise you just end up <laughs> robbing each other and killing each other and and you know falling out and you know very quickly when that happens, people just go, I'm not staying here. You know, you're awful to live. <laughs> I'm gonna go and live somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and then you lose the benefit, supposed benefit, of living in, in a big community. So, so um, we were talking about uh, groups, and um, and I, uh, I, I understand uh, what you said. I mean, you made a, a crucial distinction between the kind of groups that, I don't know, say a buffalo may, uh, may form or to primate, uh, primate groups. Uh, could you say, um, could you say a bit about why this is the case about grouping, and in particular about the social brain hypothesis? Okay. So that was very interesting, you know, uh, book. Okay, so <clears throat> this really goes back to a general mammal-wide effect, which we've really only just discovered, although we've kind right. of known about it since the 1980s, in fact. But the kind of, nobody's really connected all the dots up. But what we've been able to show is that as group size, living group size, uh, say the number of individuals who live together, increases across mammals, 
um, it starts to impact very heavily on not only the fractiousness of individuals, there's more squabbling and so on, but also in particular on female fertility because social psychological stress destabilizes um, big time uh, the cascade of, of hormones that are required uh, from the brain down to the ovaries to trigger ovulation during the course of the menstrual cycle. So you get perfectly normal menstrual cycles, will look like perfectly normal menstrual cycles, but they're infertile because ovulation doesn't happen uh, in, in the middle of it. So you very quickly end up with zero fertility. In fact, that, that it, in, in sort of basal mammals, n n sort of not particularly social mammals, um, you end up with that, or that effect is so steep that uh, you cannot have more than about five females living in a group together. And that sets an upper limit on the total size of group, at least in primates, because in primates, um, the females in a group always uh, account for a very constant 30% uh, of total group size. It's, it's, um, extremely robust effect um, and therefore that that means you end up having your social group limited to this very very small group of about 15 individuals um, that turns out to be the normal normative group size uh, in the whole wide range of even quite social mammals um, but also in in the kind of less intensely social um, primates, um, that's a very characteristic size of group. Essentially, it's a kind of small harem group, a male with uh, a few females, three or four females maybe, in there, plus their offspring. Um, so the problem is, how do you break through this um, glass ceiling is what it really is to if you want to increase group size? Because the problem is, if you're stuck at groups of size 15, then there are lots of habitats you simply can't invade and, and colonize it's uh, because you won't be able to have big enough groups to um, uh, diffuse uh, the predation risks and other risks that you face in these kind of habitats so what primates have done well there are two solutions you can either form um, herds which is the usual mammal response so things like you know, deer and antelope and uh, and the like. You just form herds which are right. unstable. They come together when it, it they're needed. A predator, predator turns up. But as soon as the predator has disappeared, um, the herd breaks up because of just the stresses of living in large groups. Um, but also because the animals' activity schedules are not terribly well coordinated so what happens very quickly is some animals want to go to rest uh, and other animals want to feed so those will drift away and the group will break up break up there's a kind of dynamic um, um, stability in 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 typical group size for the species then what primates have done the small number of other groups is to evolve uh, a much more hard-nosed, cognitively hard-nosed mechanism for handling um, these stresses. And this is in the form of forming coalitions, particularly among the females. They're small, forming small alliances within the group, which just buffers them against these stresses. It, it's not a matter of 
you know, sort of everybody putting on their armor and going out fighting, because actually that that will have the opposite effect. But it's just it's passive, um, um, really, as much as anything else. It, it, if you're if it, you know if everybody knows that you've got friends, they're much less likely to beat you up. Right. So we, we know that from the playground when we grew up. <laughs> um, so um, uh, it, it what's the big issue in that context is and also what's kind of interesting about it is that it, it, it then allows. So you have some mechanism in, in primates case, it's social grooming, which you invest a lot of time in to build these relationships. So a people can see them, but b it creates these bonded relationships through the endorphin system. Um, but in addition to that, you know, you have two or three close buddies that you devote a lot of grooming time to, and then perhaps one or two others beyond that who you, you just do a little bit of grooming with. But those little bit of groomings allow you to set up what you might think of as friends of friends effect. So it creates a kind of net expanding network um, of uh, um, people who are bound into your little clique in in a way which extends out to to inc include everybody in the in the group um limits on time uh in the end put put uh constraints on how far out you can go so at some point the connections disappear and and you end up with several um, extended networks of this kind and sub networks of this kind the group and that those fracture points is where the groups will split but usually when that happens they will split quite soon afterwards so this is again um, is a, a dynamic process that manages group size around a particular level um, but now because of these coalitionary effects you're able to have many more females living in the same group um, it's still not huge numbers. Um, you know, we might be talking about um, 10 to uh, 20, even 30 maybe females living in the same group in, in the really social, intensely social primates. But still, that's a big difference from the five that you have in the kind of basal condition. Um, so, so what's important then at this point really is how you manage those relationships. And that's the social brain effect because... Part and parcel of the system is built around being able to understand other people's intentions so that you don't behave in ways that will drive them out of the group. So if you like to think of it, uh, 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 of, um, uh, what happens in the sandpit of life at the age of uh, five or six, you know, you're all rushing around playing in the sandpit and of course that kicks sand up and somebody rushes past you and you get sand in your eyes, um, were they doing that maliciously or was it an accident? You have to be able to tell the difference between those two intentions, motivations, if you like, because if you react the wrong way, you will end up breaking the group up. So if you think that, you know, as this other kid ran past you and, and kicked the sand up, they did it deliberately and you go and beat them up, then this is going to introduce these frictions that will cause the group to fall apart because eventually, you know, with the best will in the world, we get fed up with being beaten up by other people and we go and find somewhere else to live. And that holds group size down. What you've got to be able to do is figure out, no, that was an accident. 
um, you know, we can sort it out, we can find a solution to this, we can talk it out. So it's the skills of diplomacy, really, um, being able to manage um, stresses in ways that don't cause other people to, well, I suppose, take offense and react badly or leave. And those skills are extremely expensive in cognitive and therefore neurophysiological terms to 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 uh, do um, and they also take a long time to learn in humans we now come to the conclusion the first 25 years of your life are spent um, learning how to handle this enormous complexity yes you've got the kind of toolkit provided by your genes in the form of a size of, of computer the brain that you've been given and uh, some guiding rules that underpin that. But at the end of the day, um, you have to practice and learn how to implement those rules in order for it to be effective. So you have this very long socialization process, which we think in humans goes on till the mid 20s. So you're not really adult until you're 25, I'm afraid, is the bad news here. Um, but, uh, um, you know, that, you know, and that's because. The social world is so complicated. Nothing is ever repeated twice. There are no no situations um, that, that that are ever duplicates of each other. Every every new situation has to be thought through, and that really it's those skills that seem to underpin primate sociality. They they, they can do stuff which no other species can do, and that's uh, think propositionally in causal terms, cause effect terms. Um, everybody else kind of learns associations. Primates can figure out a course effect law on the basis of one observation, uh, right? That, that one trial learning seems to be unique to primates. They can do analogical reasoning. They can compare two or the outcomes from two alternative strategic um, options to see which is the best in a way that other species can't. Uh, they can inhibit their behavior. And here's crucial going back to what I was saying about you know, not destabilizing this, the local society by flying off the handle, being able to inhibit your, what psychologists call prepotent uh, actions, your, your tendency to just do the first thing that suits you, grab the big piece of cake on the plate before everybody else gets it, to be able to step back from that and hold off and wait to see and, and, and behave more diplomatically. Uh, that capacity to inhibit behavior all depend on the bit of the brain right at the front of the brain over the eyes, Brobman areas 9 and 10, the frontal pole, which are very late evolutionary. They develop very late in the normal processes of brain development in, in humans and primates, and they evolve very late. They're, they're the new bits of the, the brain that seem to have evolved to handle this incredibly social world. And, you know, the size of your brain accommodating this um, across primates and into humans then uh, is determined by the size of social group you typically have to keep functional. And that's the social brain hypothesis. Humans, uh, you know, the predicted size and the observed size for natural human groups is 100, about 150, give or take uh, variants around that as usual. And that turns out to be the number of this typical size of your social networks, um, as well as... Uh, 
um, hunter-gatherer social groups and other forms of natural social groupings. But you, you know, your personal social world, which consists predominantly of uh, half extended family and half friends, um, comes to around about you know 150 people. If you've got a very big brain, like all philosophers, maybe you can do 200 people. Uh, <laughs> If you're a scientist, have a small brain. Well, okay. it's just a hundred. <laughs> Maybe a hundred, yeah. <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> okay. Um, I think uh, that's great. That, I think that more or less covers maybe some fundamentals of your account. We didn't touch on everything. We didn't touch on the seven pillars of friendship and mentalizing and the role of ritual. But, you know, there's there's a... It's plenty to read in your book, but it'd be, it'd be good now maybe to move on to the more theoretical aspects of your account, okay. things, um, I guess, things that your account provoked in us. So one thought I had when I was uh, reading about the distinction between doctrinal and shamanic religions is that whilst doctrinal religions, so one intuition might be that they're better at holding people together because they've actually laid out their ideas, their precepts, and there's little room for interpretation. Um, but as you sort of explain at length in one of your chapters, doctrinal religions are extremely prone to fragmentation as well. Maybe because they're doctrinal, because they formalize right. their beliefs, and so people can argue about distinct things. Um, so I just wanted to ask whether there's any archaeological evidence for as to whether one is more prone to fragmentation than another. Are immersive religions more prone to it or doctrinal ones? Is it maybe because doctrinal ones formalize their beliefs and so people can sort of disagree with distinct things? Yeah, I, I think this has much more simply to do with the size of the group. I mean, I don't think uh, there's really any archaeological evidence for this fragmentation effect. Um, I think there's a lot of historical and ethnographic evidence for it, perhaps. Um, and the historical evidence is simply that all the doctrinal religions, all the revealed religions through the ages um, have been bedeviled by this tendency for cults and sects to bubble up constantly from underneath. And, and Christianity in the first few hundred years was just, you know, it wasn't unified at all. Um, uh, it was just a whole bunch of little sects sort of rising out in different parts of the Mediterranean. And of course, that was one of the reasons for having all the church councils and why there were so many of them in the in the first four or five centuries uh, of Christianity, because they were constantly being, being bedeviled by new heretical sects arising in different parts of the Mediterranean. And, and one reason for that is, was simply lack of control, because, you know, in the days when you only had a sailing ship and basically had to go in person, sort some, you know, sort of dodgy uh, theology out that, that had uh, risen in, in some corner of the Roman Empire. You know, that was too slow, absolutely too slow. So you had this constant... Um, appearance of lots of little sects all over the place, usually under a charismatic leader. And they had to institute all these um, councils then to try and decide whether or not they were heretical, and, and if so, <clears throat> suppress them. And the same is true if you look at the Reformation. And the Reformation spawned new little cults all over the place. 
Um, again, if you look at all of these cults, they're very often ecstatic in, in, in their basic form. They were all built around charismatic leaders. They were all involved novel rituals. Occasionally there was some new theology involved, but most of them were uh, involved um, rituals and practices which were essentially ecstatic in form. And I, the, the problem, I think, for all the doctrinal religions is once you let these ecstatic forms of religion uh, loose in the system, it is impossible to control them because they're anarchic. There is no way of, of, of controlling them except beating them up, if you like trying to suppress them. And uh, very quickly, the whole thing gets taken off. And of course, that's exactly the history of all the doctrinal religions. That's you know, look back at the history of Christianity. It's a small sect that arose out of out of Judaism. Islam, the same, a small sect that emerged out of the sort of mixture of Judaism and Christianity in in the Arabian Peninsula in the seventh century uh, A.D. Um, by the same token, if you look at Buddhism, you know, it's broken up into lots of relatively small sects. They they kind of come together in in the two or maybe three major branches of Buddhism, but still there are lots of little um, groupings built around particular uh, monasteries usually. So so the problem they have is how to control and manage that. And I think the reason is, goes back to the fact that religion is a small-scale phenomenon. It was designed to cohere communities of between 100 and 200 people, and that's a very characteristic size for new sects, it turns out to be the ideal size for congregations, at least in Western Christianity. Um, we've not been able to lay hands on data from other um, uh, major doctrinal religions, but uh, there's loads and loads of data suggesting this is the ideal size for um, uh, congregations because it's small enough for the priest or pastor or whatever it may be, the minister, to know his entire flock or her entire flock and to minister to them in the way the flock expects, to do all those kind of social and other ritual things for them. But also it's small enough for the members of the flock to feel that they belong to a community. And, and very characteristic, if congregations get bigger than that, they start to lose members because people feel disconnected. And elites, <laughs> back to that again, elites build up within the congregation who want to take it over and run it <laughs> in the way they like. Mm. And so the people, other people get disaffected uh, and leave. There's a trade-off here because obviously the bigger the, the congregation, the more money it raises and therefore the more self-supporting it is and the more good works it can do out in, in the wider community. So there's a bit of a trade-off going on in there. So that's one key component of this. And what's interesting is I think that if you look at the all these um, small sects, these ecstatic type sects, even in, in the modern world, um, they're almost always uh, built around a charismatic individual who provides the core to it. And some, you know, historically... Those have been all over the place um, in different forms. And, you know, I think that's the origin of most of the monastic uh, orders in, um, in, in, in Catholicism, for example. Um, you know, that, that's a very smart way in which Rome has managed to cor corral and constrain 
these charismatic sects built round some charismatic founders, St. Dominic, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, St. Benedict, etc., etc. Mm. You know, they've managed to hold them together, not always and not always perfectly. As you look at the Franciscans, you know, at one stage, they fragmented as they got bigger and bigger into, you know, well, anything up to 10, as, as far as I can make out, or a dozen uh, separate um, uh, lineages of, of Franciscans, all of whom hated each other. And, you know, various popes trying to push them back together again and get them reunited. And, and currently, you know, the best they've managed to do is, I think there are three major Franciscan orders now who are completely separate, but they're Franciscans. They all owe their allegiance, if you like, to foundation by St. Francis. But they disagree completely about how one should do these things. So so this is a constant battle, I think, and 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 it's it's what the doctrinal religions have had to contend with and I think that is why they become disciplinarian if you like the the to because in order to maintain doctrinal consistency and therefore communal consistency um, you have to impose discipline from above so if you don't then you kind of end up in a in a kind of um, well it's not kind of the right word to use but a, a form of chaos as it were such as you have in hinduism uh, in the sense that every little shrine um is is a separate um uh, charismatic sect of some sort but you know <laughs> the way hinduism has managed mm. to deal with that very very cleverly is to hold all that diversity and complexity mm. together without it completely falling apart. But that's probably because it allows it to be very localized and in a context where communication between geographical uh, areas is very, very slow. It allows um, separate um, uh, subdivisions, uh, subsects, if you like, to, to survive uh, contentedly uh, and 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 serve their their local population in the way the local population wants uh, wants them to function for them, perfectly okay. Right. So so you know, it, but that's rare. I mean, Hinduism is is kind of rare. Islam is a little bit like that in the sense that each mosque is a um, you know, self controlled theologically self controlled um, unit, and and hence you get this enormous fragmentation that you get in in. Islam, particularly in the Shia side of Islam, uh, with many, many, many different um, uh, sects that have emerged over the centuries. But, but, but you see the same thing in Christianity. So in, in Presbyterian Christianity, uh, again, you know, each, each, each church um, is run by a, a committee, essentially, of, of elders who are largely independent of... Um, the other churches that some discipline is being imposed from the center um, but still there's capacity there for them to become much more to, to be much more independent and independent minded if you like um, than is the case say in, in in catholicism or anglicanism or lutheranism perhaps but um, so you know my view emerged out of sort of kind of recognizing that these upwellings from underneath are just a fact of life that you you can't um, do anything about it's just part of our social fabric we see it in the normal um, run of everyday everyday life and it bedevils religions and if you want religion to 
act as the cohesive force for very, very large communities, this is the problem you're going to have to constantly battle against in some way. There is no solution that is nirvana that that will always solve it and prevent it happening. You just have to find some solution. It's, you know, top-down, heavy-handed top-down discipline as Rome has exerted um, over the over the centuries in the past at least um, has been one solution but um, you know maybe Hinduism Buddhism affected a kind of more bottom-up way of dealing with it and accepted that you're going to have more fragmentation right so uh, we've, we've already uh, spoken earlier about how religion confers the evolutionary benefits uh, on individuals and groups as we, we were talking uh, but one thing that Achilles and I discussed at length is that it kind of for us it remains unclear. Uh, one of the things that remains unclear actually is um, is religion the most effective glue for group bonding, um, such that religious individuals in a way have greater chances of survival than non-religious individuals. If I don't know if that if that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> that's a very interesting question. Actually, I, I mean, I really don't think we have a good handle on that or, or know what the answer is in terms of individual survival. Right. Um, it's very, very hard to say. It is probably safe to say that it certainly produces on the whole better survival for communities as a whole, even if not all individuals uh, benefit equally within the community. Yeah, I, I think the reason I'm hesitating is I just cannot think of a study that's really looked at these effects in any detail because what we'd like to know right. you know is is what's the lifetime survival and and um uh fecundity uh i.e genetic fitness of individuals who live in these regimes compared with yes. individuals that live in other kinds of religions or or, or even non-religions um and and you know that's a massive scale um study and it, of course the problem is it also gets very mixed up with politics um uh the establishment of state yeah with rulers. I, I, I could imagine it, it it is you know is the survival of england as a political entity through the last thousand years a consequence of uh the religion or religions <laughs> that it's adopted uh over the years or is it a consequence of the um uh, the rulers it's had and, and the way they've managed the um, uh, control over this relatively diverse range of, of people. It's, it's very, very hard to pick yes. that apart. But um, Yeah, I suppose, I mean, uh, funny enough, I mean, our interview falls uh, a few weeks after uh, several news sort of aligned at the same time about the census of uh, the decline of religion in England, yeah. the fact that... Uh, Christians are now a minority and so on. Um, and I d- it did get me thinking about, because we, w- we were actually reading your book alongside. And uh, But then, you know, of course, I think I think it's right to point on, on the one hand that it's very difficult and quite perhaps difficult to yeah. answer a question, uh, which can also involve politics. But, I, I mean, at some point I kind of thought, well, you know what, it might be that, it might also be a reflection that we are not so interested in survival anymore. Not that we don't care about survival, but we sort of we have achieved that, uh, a sort of safe area by which survival is not yeah. one of our priorities yeah. now we yeah it, 
We've Everything else is more than just survival. Yeah. I mean, that's a component to it. It's in, in uh, biological yeah. terms, it's the number of descendants you leave. We don't probably look too far <laughs> yes. down that line. You know, most most of us probably can only look up, down as far as grandchildren and go, yep, this will be good for them. Um, uh, right. Uh, um, uh, so there are trade-offs here because <laughs> survival... <laughs> Survival isn't always lots Indeed. of biological evidence. It's just survival isn't always evolutionarily beneficial for you. It doesn't necessarily ma maximize fitness. It is the number of, as, as uh, John Maynard uh, Smith, the great evolutionary biologist, used to say, evolution is not interested in children. It's interested in grandchildren. And the problem is you have no control over yeah. that. <laughs> Um, uh, but mm, the, the, absolutely. um, you know, I think what is, what you can say thinking about it, and there is ever very good evidence, uh, for this is that when things get bad, whether that's environmentally bad or, um, politically bad. So in times of war, for example, major war, not just a, a little bit of local fighting, um, between neighboring villages, then you get an upsurge in religious attendance and, and, and religiosity, people to become more religious. Um, and you might see that as being part and parcel of the um, uh, attempt to build a more cohesive society in the face of external threats of this kind, you know, whether that threat is terrible famines uh, or whether it's sort of invasion um, by, by, by neighboring states. Um, and, and that is actually the argument I deploy. I mean, that, that we, people have shown uh, with recent um, uh, contemporary evidence that that, that is the, the case very much. Um, but I may kind of exploit that, if you like, to, to explain why you get the um, uh, revealed religions of the Axial Age. So this is this period between about 3,004, well, 2,000 and 3,500 years ago, so quite a narrow window when almost all the modern revealed doctrinal world religions appeared. They appeared very suddenly um, across the same latitudinal band uh, in this very narrow window. And I, it seemed to me, when you look at the archaeological or historical evidence, uh, it corresponds to a period of dramatic collapse. So you've had the doctrinal religions of the older type emerging from around, let's say, eight or 9,000 years ago as people living in bigger and bigger groups. And the reason for that is you've got very rich uh, environmental conditions in, uh, at the, at the, um, in this, this latitudinal band that sits across the, the Mediterranean, particularly the, the southern coast of the Mediterranean through um, the, the um, uh, Near East, across through through the Ganges plain in India, right the way across into uh, the Great Basin in China. Um, this uh, perfect conditions for growth. I mean, remember at this time, the Sahara was watered. It was luxuriant. There were forests and there were lakes and rivers and hippopotamuses and fish. And then 4,200 years ago, um, the weather patterns changed and it all dried up. Um, and this whole right. latitudinal band where you had, had 
four or five thousand years of rapid population growth putting pressure on people's ability to live peacefully with each other um, uh, completely collapsed and it caused massive movements of uh, uh, people from one area to another the, the, the kind of famous case in the, the eastern Mediterranean is this, these mysterious people called the sea people um, whom everybody refers to in the historical record as the sea people the sea people turned up again um, uh, um, and they cause massive destruction. You know, the, the archaeological record is just full. Every city, you know, has got nice buildings, and then you've got a meter of ash where it's been burnt, and then you've got nice buildings again, uh, coming being rebuilt on top of it. And it seems like the sea people were coming out of southern Europe somewhere. Uh, we can blame the Greeks because they're the nearest place, <laughs> but I suspect they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't Greeks. They were coming from, you know, sort of further north, being just pushed out by declining, declining environmental side because they came with their wives and their cattle and everything. It wasn't that they were going, you know, raiding um, for, 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 for uh, silver and gold or anything like that. They were looking for places to settle. The Egyptians are the ones that kind of, they had a couple of very big battles with them, which they defeated them. And then they kind of came to an arrangement with them and said, okay, you can settle if you want. Um, but, but most likely they were coming down through, through the Greek peninsula because that's the nearest bit as it were. But all over that eastern end of the Mediterranean, you've got all these cities which were just burnt to the ground as a result of this. And you see exactly the same thing in the Ganges plain, the collapse of the Harappan Empire. Um, uh, in China, the same thing, the, the, the early age uh, empire there that, that um, in, in the Great Basin between the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers. Again, that collapsed and, and uh, it took a, a while for things to be rebuilt. But what you see in that context is the Axial Age religions suddenly appearing. And what's interesting is they all appear when you've got a population unit, a political unit, a state, if you like, of at least a million people. And a million people is a lot to coordinate and make sure they behave. And if you've got a context in which there's a lot of disruption going on, social and political disruption, this is a recipe for disaster because, you know, humans are not very well behaved um, if there isn't a police force. So if, if the, you know, there's this Hobbes. <laughs> Again, you know, if, if the police force disappears, everybody goes robbing each other. <laughs> They're very badly behaved. Sorry, but this is this is what's so fascinating about your account. It's that you've got these 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 huge pressures facing a population of one million people, and, and presumably you, you you know you already have a state apparatus that's trying to deal with it, and then you've got these isolated individuals, these uh, Muhammads, these Jesuses, these I don't know Moses, let's mm, say, mm, and mm. they're not part of the state apparatus; they're outliers, and yeah. yet somehow. They're the ones that are going to solve this problem. How would but, you think about always, that? What always happens is the state, after a while, goes, "Yeah, that's a really good idea. We'll 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 buy into this. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you be, become yeah, our yeah, new yeah. state religion?" <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah, yeah. Of course, is what what happened. Um, you know, when Rome took over Christianity as its state religion instead of under Constantine. Of course, yeah. Something that I, th I thought was probably the most interesting thing about your book was your emphasis on religion as an emotional experience 
uh, you know, nowadays, you know, the last 40, 50 years, at least in public debate, you know, you always get atheists and religious people debating about tenets of religion, about the possibility yeah. of the existence of God and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I gather from your book that you probably think all this is quite pointless because fundamentally, uh, they're not really there. They're not, they don't really believe because they buy into the Trinity. They believe because of the, the emotional uh, underpinning that it provides. Am I right about that? Yes, abso absolutely so. Well, it's, you know, I think okay. the, the emotional underpinnings are there for all of us. As I've, I, I, I've been um, uh, wanted to, to, to say on occasion, you know, um, if you don't believe me that humans are naturally religious, um, just go out into a dark forest overnight uh, in somewhere you don't know, right? And by the morning, I'll show you a skeptic who is rather prone to religion. <laughs> you know that that we're all you know when 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 we can't explain what's going on you know religion provides some explanation for that and and it, it, it the the kind of emotional feelings that emerge out of those experiences and one of those is what you experience in ecstatic or trance states that not says to say it's necessarily frightening for you, but it's an experience which you can't, it doesn't seem to uh, be part of our natural physical world in which we're embedded and understand reasonably well, at least in, in phenomenological terms. Um, but, you know, here's this world which which you can't quite put your finger on and, and explain what it is, that, that, you know, reflecting on those leads very quickly it seems to me and obviously without you know too much trouble at all um to belief in some spirit world and so on and so we're very prone if you like this is kind of evidence in favor of the cognitive science of religion view there are you know our psychology is not necessarily designed to be religious it has that consequence though because of the way it's been designed to um solve other problems and those other problems are about understanding other people's beliefs and intentions so it goes back to the cognitive mechanism let's say mentalizing which manages allows us to manage these very complex by primate standard large and complex um social groups um but one there's a kind of spillover from that which which it seems to me makes us very prone to believing in spirit worlds and you see that reflected in how we view um even now uh the 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 way the world works you know we use these mentalizing uh ways of phrasing things of the physical world when it's quite obvious <laughs> they, the physical world doesn't have you know uh, um um uh, a, a mind to mentalize with so we speak of you know, uh, lightning being angry or thunder being angry or the clouds are lowering at us. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they don't. They don't have minds. But that's such an easy way for us to interpret everything we do. That's to say the social world, because most of the social world, and to some extent many of the animals we in interact with, do have minds and, and therefore understanding the intentions and mental mm. states of 
these other objects in the environment, social objects in the environment, is a very, very effective way of managing it. Um, and, and, you know, it seems to me this just leads us into sort of one step further of attributing these anthropomorphic states, you might say, uh, mind states to anything out there. You know, it's a good description. You know, it, it, it's a, it's, it works as a plaster. It might not be, it might not get you, you know, to understand the physics of clouds or weather or anything like that. But as a, you know, most of us people out there in the real world from hunter-gatherers to uh, us, most of us today uh, who are not physicists in laboratories, you know, we deal with that kind of phenomenological world and in, in this kind of, uh, cheap and cheerful kind of way that works very efficiently at that level, but you know it's yeah. it doesn't mean to say it's it it's an approximation of a kind, <laughs> in the same sense as you might say Newtonian physics is an approximation of the true physics of uh, of the universe. You know we know we know that you know Newtonian physics is um, you know works wonderfully. After all, they got the Apollo thirteen astronauts back from the moon. You know, using simple mm. Newtonian physics, yet we know that the world isn't Newtonian in that simple-minded sense. You know, Newtonian physics breaks down at very small and very large scales. Um, something more complicated is going on. So, you know, life depends... The way we, organisms live life is in a sort of satisficing sense, in the economist sense. It's what works. And, and this whole design of the mind as a mentalizing computer if you like um it is very very efficient for the world in which we spend most of our time you know it doesn't make too much odds if we get it wrong with clouds but it you know works extremely well for humans and it works quite well for you know quite a number of animals it's not so good with trees i have to agree but i actually have a question this is, this is fascinating um and obviously, you, you don't get the opportunity to write about um, uh, about this in the book. But I was thinking, what what do you thought about loss of faith, particularly in the sense of, you know, it, it's the example that you put about so you put someone in a forest overnight, and I bet there is one skeptic that is prone to illusion. And um, and I wonder about loss of faith and how how is that reconciled? Because on the one hand, if religion provides explanations, and then there is a loss of faith, then that doesn't mean that one doesn't biologically remove our need for explanation. We might find yeah. somewhere else, of course, but it has to be much more than that. Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Um, I mean, this goes back, uh, if you like, to the fact that what we're actually building is mental models of the universe in our minds. This is how we how how we deal with the world right. that's out there, um, and in the end. You know, whether you are deeply religious or not, I, I would argue it depends on whether you've had some kind of deep and meaningful religious experience in this kind of ecstatic or near ecstatic sense. Um, mm. One thing that's also characteristic of humans, though, is we're very good at forgetting, you know, so I might have had some very charismatic ecstatic experiences in my childhood or teenage years or early adulthood and become very religious of that but after that you know nothing really happened it kind of 
didn't make any difference to the to the way I lived my life. Um, and so you kind of, well, you just kind of forget. You don't have a kind of great um, conversion <laughs> experience, I suspect. Um, I mean, this is kind of interesting, actually, because people speak of having conversion experiences, and I think that is how people often become religion. Yes. That you never have uh, uh, people saying, I had a conversion experience and became an atheist. You know, it just kind of drifts away. And I think this is because of this forgetting effect. So, you know, by the time I get uh, to, into mi wow. middle life or older life, it's been such a long time since I've experienced any of these things. I kind of can't remember really what it was like. And, you know, I'm getting on fine. I don't need that kind of framework anyway to, to, to help me live my life. Right. So I suspect it has you know, some degree of that. And that would explain why religions seem to lose purchase, if you like, uh, in context of great social and economic stability. So that that's when um, uh, religions seem to, to, to struggle most. You know, if you look in the contemporary world, um, the places which are most intensely religious, you know, are relatively poor, um, uh, are, are much more susceptible to environmental and economic shocks, or they're migrants, right? And you think of migrants, uh, um, you know, having a, a religious community you can go along to as effectively a ready-made family because you're moving from, you know, one culture to another, perhaps as, you know, having had a pretty rough time in between, um, mm. you're disillusioned, you're uh, dispirited, you're, you know, you're in pretty bad shape. And having somewhere where you can go along to and be welcomed in as a member of the community and be supported emotionally and psychologically, not just, physically necessarily, um, uh, I guess is, um, you know, hugely beneficial. And so it, it kind of doesn't surprise me that if you look at where the um, uh, religious resurgences are going on here, they are in, you know, sort of areas mm. like Islam, for example, um, you know, which are catering to, to, to particular communities. Because the converse effect it's the big doctrinal religions of, of christianity uh, the se uh, sects of christianity that are losing purchase except for the charismatic ones right so the pentecostal religions right. uh, uh, are, are doing just fine but also what's been interesting you know we speak of um the decline of religion in the west but this is based on people's you know, responding to a census question which says which which religion do you belong to? You know, Christianity, Greek Orthodox, yeah, uh, um, uh, um, Catholicism, um, you know, Islam, Hinduism, or what have you. And what you're seeing is this decline in the, in, in particularly in, the, in respect to the Christian churches primarily. Um, but it doesn't mean to say people are actually be, being less religious because, as, uh, as somebody else put it what you've been seeing um, is a case of a shift from uh, formal religions to casual religions. So the rise of the house church um, uh, movement in Protestant Christianity in, in, in 
Europe and in, in America. Um, what what was the term that was used? It was rather good. Um, uh, um, belonging without believing. That was what it was. I was absolutely hit the nail on the head. I feel right. that I'm part of a, a religious community, but this religious community is really very small. It is just a you know forty or fifty or hundred people who gather together for for a, for a kind of much more charismatic. Uh, experiential, immersive form of, mm. of um, religious service than you're you're being offered in the big churches. Do you do you see any connection between psychological studies that show that people are less happy in the West with the decline of religion, or? It, I mean, you do a... see that 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 effect. Of course, the great problem always is with these things is correlations don't don't mean necessarily causation. Um, so you know, it yeah. would need unpacking a bit more, I think, to, to establish. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it would need unpacking a bit more to establish whether that is a consequence of not being um, part of a religion uh, in some form. I mean, if you you kind of might <clears throat> you kind of might argue that this goes back to the nineteen sixties, the hippie movement. This is when it all started. This disengagement from the big religions. But you know, um, uh, as, as you're too young to have either been there and not remembered, or not remembered and been there. Uh, as the you know, <laughs> if you remember the sixties, you weren't there, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know the 60s were all about these kind of small charismatic often kind of hugely influenced by Hinduism and, and Buddhism and, and the religions of India these charismatic communes um, you know some of them spawn quite weird you know sort of literal religions you know, sort of the spaceship religions and astrology type stuff. Um, <clears throat> uh, um, you know, theologically, very, very strange. Um, but, you know, that was one of the characteristics of the 60s because all these people hung out together. You know, they, they did the cheap and cheerful way of having trance effects by, by taking drugs to do it, which is, you know, as I said before, is taking a <laughs> sledgehammer to, to, to a nut, whereas... In Indian mystical traditions, this was done by enormous the yogin traditions, the Buddhist meditation processes. This is you have to learn by a lot of practice and hard work how to do the get into trance spontaneously through meditation, you know, and that is actually a much, much better effect. I'm afraid the hippies kind of discovered the cheap and cheerful <laughs> uh, ersatz version. <laughs> <laughs> how to do it so yeah. you know it kind of right. never 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 survived because it was you know had too many mm. other side effects which which weren't very pleasant but i think you can see that you know people were clearly looking for some kind of meaning in their life even though they'd become disillusioned with the main mainstream religions and i think this is also you know it keeps resurfacing it keeps giving rise to the growth of the kind of pentecostal type um, um, evangelical churches, which are often much more mm -hmm. 
uh, experiential in, in their rituals um, and also to things like the house church movements where people just sort of go off and gather together and, and, and that's what you were seeing during the Reformation with, with the rise of all these small, numerous, hundreds of, uh, well, thousands of these small cults and sects that, 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 that emerged, almost all of them based on ecstatic experiences in some form, many of them with very weird theologies and sometimes very troubling to their founders. Some of them survived and became you know, mainstream churches, you know, so the Methodists started <laughs> in this vein and, you know, Wesley, as the founder, was very exercised, lays this out in his diaries, he was very upset about some of the practices and theologies of some of the chapels that had, that had been founded in his name, you know, and, and, and why are the Quakers called the Quakers, you know, that's not their proper name, but they call themselves the Quakers now, it's because they started <laughs> off by doing an awful lot of quaking, <laughs> having ecstatic experiences, mm. which they still do, it's still part of their religious tradition. Um, of course, you know, the Shakers were another lot over in America, a spin-off actually of the Quakers that, um, set up in America. You know, they did it through dancing and, and you know, the, sh the, sh the shaker part, shaking part of the, sh the popular name sh for them, the Shakers, was because they were having these ecstatic experiences. Right. Well, that's great. Uh, Robin, thank you so much. Um, just one final question. Uh, what, what are you... Uh currently working on? What are your future projects? Uh, um, uh, well, mostly I'm trying to co really finish off uh, a lot of unpublished uh, papers, but I, I want to try and pull this stuff together into a couple of books, one on primate evolution and one on human um, uh, social evolution um, as academic monographs with all the data, because a lot <laughs> of the books I do you know, um, are written for popular audiences. That's actually me thinking through ideas and trying to get them to fit together and, and, and get a coherent story out of it. So they tend not to have a lot of the evidence actually there on the page in the form of graphs. So I, I, I really want to, uh, and the evidence for it is sort of scattered in this sort of diverse, um, huge, diverse literature in different journals and different, different disciplines even. So it's very hard. I think for people to see the coherence uh, of these ideas. So um, what I'm trying to do is to <clears throat> get to the point where I can put together, <coughs> oh dear, where I can put together all the actual evidence on the page in an in an academic book and say, no, look, this is this is how we think it is. But I'm it's got to, because of so much. It's such a big story. It's going to have to be done in two parts. One one in terms of um, uh, primate social evolution, providing the big picture, if you like, and then one in terms of how this actually works on the page for human organizations. Well, that sounds fascinating. Okay, well, thank you one more time. A great pleasure. And, uh, and that's all from us. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. So that was great, wasn't it? He was enthusiastic. Yeah, it was very interesting to see him, you know, asking, uh, pondering. It, it's, it's, it's refreshing. Sometimes 
I assume you would make, I don't know when you have more experience than me on this, but it must be difficult when you ask a question and you just get a very short, simple answer because then you, mm. you don't know what to, you know, how yeah. to... Roman was very kind with his time and uh, uh, yeah. it was it was fascinating him sort of ponder at length. Yeah, um, every question we asked him, it was as if he was going back to the very foundations of his book. Because every question, to answer it, required all of that material all to support it, to build it up, which was uh, wonderful. I wanted to, I've actually, as you know, I've read his previous work on friendship before. I actually thought, you know, it was um, it was very good. I mean, it's a very, very good book, very interesting as well. The number 150 comes up and so on. But it's interesting how seeing him talk about uh, religion and stuff, um, it almost I, for for a moment when I was in, in the interview because he's so he has such a grasp of his topic of this topic that you forget that this is you know someone who has a much more broader field of study. I mean, he could be writing tomorrow about music, and it's probably going to be uh, you know pretty good as well. Um, right, like uh, the, like how I, how music is evolutionary beneficial or something like that. Yeah, because like, I I think I boxed him in very easily in my head. As mm. someone who knows and writes about religion, but this guy is someone who, you know, just not so much about a lot of things. So that, that was fascinating, obviously, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I think, uh, and he mentioned this towards the end of the, of the interview, what's probably, what's probably one of the most enjoyable, but also intimidating, because, you know, you, all, you always, yeah. when you're reading one of these books, I, I suppose, I mean, I at least, I want to take a slightly critical stance. I don't want to necessarily mm. just assume that it's right. And I want to find maybe problems with it or holes in, in the argument. But what's so yeah. powerful, I think, about Robin's approach is it's so multidisciplinary. It covers so many bases. It draws evidence from so many resources that it just yeah. seems very imposing. And it's, it has the aura of completeness to a certain extent, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it looks very robust. So he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely not just a primate specialist or uh, an anthropologist, but he's, you know, taking from everywhere and... Yeah, precisely, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's interesting. We, we, we usually, when, when you invite me to your show, as I like to call it, um, uh, we usually prepare, like, a big set of questions. And, and and we go through them. I mean, I like to think quite thoroughly about the questions and so, and so on and so forth. Um, but this time, obviously, I mean, we didn't have enough time, and there were very, very big questions that we wanted to to reach. Uh, but sadly, obviously, we were working with a time constraint on 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 both behalf. So um, it would have been yeah. interesting, definitely, to hear on uh, a few things that we just yeah. didn't have the the time with him. So I think maybe we could discuss one of those, or maybe two, but let's see how much time we have. But definitely one of those questions that I think we were both struck by, not questions. Yeah. One of those aspects of the book that we were struck by was. The seven pillars of friendship. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, That's uh, on page. Okay. Yes, it's on page one hundred nine, one hundred ten, uh, one ten of the book. So one, so the just for reference, the seven pillars of friendship are natal area, current location, ethnicity, music, politics, morals, and religion. And these are sort of taken to be the most important traits for people when they're sort of becoming acquainted with someone, the most important traits for them to become friends. Um, 
And what's interesting about this experiment is that music, politics, morals, and religion just appear as significantly more important than the other three categories. And yeah. that was something that we found very interesting on the one hand, because morals, politics, and religion seem to sort of fall under a more general category of worldview, whereas music yeah. stands apart as something very different to them, but equally important. I think we were having this conversation, weren't we, about... Um, we were wondering whether perhaps it was... Uh, perhaps artistic sensibility was a much better name for it, but then, obviously, I mean, the studies about music, I mean, it mentions a variable, is music. Yeah. Um, and I, what I kept thinking is, I mean, personally, I did think it was a bit offside to, to bring music into into it. Um, but two things happened. I was, I, I've never watched the show Friends. Uh, not <laughs> Friends, um, Sex and Sex, sorry. Uh, I've never seen it. I, I've never seen it. And I, I've started watching it. Uh, and in the first few episodes, um, there is a scene where one of the characters is moving out of a flat and all the other girls arrive to the flat and then they put music and they seem to start dancing and you know it's sort of such a unifying thing. And it got me thinking, I mean, Robin Dunbar is, is, you know, he was talking about evolution and so on. And if I remember correctly, when the very first um, country frontiers in uh, Australian tribes uh, made of music, I think music does have a much more broader uh, application. I'm sure it was, yeah, they used to, they used to, music was the way that you would realize you were not in your territory. So when you wow, have a different okay. tune. But, yeah, and so I thought about that and I thought, so, so, yeah. So someone was so, permanently playing music. Well, no, I guess there was like an interval of time and, and then right, yeah, okay. you, you would hear it at this. I know. <laughs> so <are> they... <laughs> with the drums, yeah. yeah. Uh... We were talking about it. So I guess the idea is that, right? That music, we seem to all have the idea, we've all experienced it, that music can get everyone to be in the same emotional state, to participate in the same event without knowing each other. So, you know, you yeah. might think of a club or a concert where no one, yeah. everyone there is a stranger and they're all there for the music. And yes. they're, they're sort of harmoniously together. They're acting in unison. But something that yeah. was, I guess, unconvincing was, but they don't really leave as friends. Um, how many friendships sure. really are based on the on music i think so i think as a teenager i think music is very important well i don't know i don't know now but mm. uh i mean back in my old days uh <laughs> 15 years ago um music was very important it, it, it would distinguish like the cool kids from the non-cool kids and you know coldplay was like super alternative and uh mm. things like that um and th there was such an appeal for certain people to hang on, hang out with the group of people. Uh, I mean, you would have the goths going one way, and you would have the pop singers <laughs> the other way. Yeah, and now, it, it really and, as like an identity marker, right? Yeah, and now I think like with things such as like K-pop and so on, that they really do 
uh, so I can see I can see that. But so this is what I wanted to say. Um, I think uh, if we look at music sort of uh, as an instrument for like uh, congregation and communion, as it is, um, and uh, you know, back in the Middle Ages, like someone with a shitty violin there and everyone's gathering around <laughs> and. Um, that is one thing. I mean, that is communion. That that is, yeah. And this is one of the things that I struggle with the book at some point when it turns of religion. I genuinely doubt that many people could go to, to attend a, a religious service. They go there for the sake of communion, of uh, companionship for an hour. It's, it's like you know, you get for a, an hour a week, and and you do give the peace to everyone and whatever. Um, but then that's it. I mean, these people are not your friends. I mean, you might you might have a level of courtesy and perhaps kindness more so than a stranger. Yeah. But I don't know. I I, I think of of my friendships and I and probably music is not really a um such a big market. And maybe that's just that's just the way I am. But uh, yeah. um, I can't see yeah. some, disliking some artists that I don't like. I mean, yeah, something that I just thought about as we were. Because we, we talked about instead of music, maybe aesthetic sensibility. Because we, for us, films would be maybe something that would bring you together with someone, right? Like agreeing yeah. that oh, this is a great film, and relishing in how good it is. In a way that and, music and doesn't. An... Sure, but I wouldn't call you to be like, "Hey, you want to come and listen to our record?" I mean, I probably would, but. Uh, I, think, I think I think I think many people do that. Maybe it's just us. Yeah. I, <laughs> but, yeah. But the other day I did buy a record and I did tell you, you know what? Next time you're here, we should listen to it. So I, I mean, yeah. yeah, maybe, yeah maybe yeah. there is something. But he also mentions yeah. that um, singing, for example. So he, there's a previous chapter where he talks about socializing activities that help bond yeah. people, like laughing, dancing, feasting, and singing. And he mentions in passing that singing is the most scalable of these activities. It's the activity where you can have the largest number of people without losing any sense of the intimacy. So like laughter, it only really works with like three, five people, he says, I think. Whereas singing, you can have a lot of people. I can't remember exactly the number. And that seems to be something particular to music. Like paintings wouldn't scale, sculptures wouldn't scale, movies maybe, but you're limited by the size of the screen. Really, I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe movies would be a good, um, a good uh, competitor to music and scalability. But music seems to be very powerful in this respect that it can bind many people. Yes, and maybe it's also, and this is this is something that is very when when philosophers of when philosophers write about philosophy of music, let's say, or they do aesthetics and they try to think about music in relation to other arts. One of the key points is that music doesn't obviously have content the way other arts have content. It's right. when you hear a symphony, uh, it doesn't give you a, a an image or a word or a, a direct thing that you're meant to imagine in your mind. Whereas a painting or a novel or whatever, it presents you with the content. And I wonder yes. whether it's this contentless aspect of music and maybe even certain kinds of singing that 
penetrates into everyone and also sort of binds them as well. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, I thought of music as very mono, isn't it? Um, it, it you just listen to it. Uh, if if you, if someone is painting and there is too many people, you can't see. It's like trying to see the Mona Lisa in uh, yeah, Paris. exactly. So, yeah, the Mona Lisa wouldn't bind anyone. Like three no, people. No, it's not. Uh, yeah. Same with film. Might not be interested in it. Might not. You know, there, there are so many. Whereas music, you just listen to it, and, and I agree well, with you. Right, yeah. Like a, if you're having a political discussion, you can concretely disagree with something, and then there's like a, a line in the sand. But with music, yeah. you can't really concretely disagree. Either you like it or you don't. Either you get that gut reaction of "ah, oh, that's that's beautiful," or you're like "oof, not really." Um, yes. I I mean, yeah, that, that um, I want, I don't know. So, yeah, I agree with you as far as, like, classical music or um, mm. any sort of non-vocal music goes. Yeah, yeah, I agree yeah. on that. Because I think with uh, music, there is content now. I mean, there, there is actually, you know, the, the lyrics and so on, which I, I'm, I, I'm the only person, I think, that doesn't listen to the lyrics. <laughs> I just like the chorus. And if I like the chorus, I'm fine. Uh, and even if I hear a song, I, I generally don't know what they're saying. I mean, I have to read the lyrics to understand what they're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once the lyrics, now I know what they're saying. It's like, ah, okay, fine. So I rather mm. sometimes stop. Do you but think? Yes, I agree with you. Do you think it says something about us that the most important things for friendship are? Either something that's like a purely raw emotional experience like music or something that's a very intellectual activity like morals, religion, or politics. Or maybe it's not intellectual. Maybe that's also part of Robin's point. That's also a really an equally emotional experience. Well, I mean, if you look at the, at the table that we have there, um, yeah. I, I, I can't think of religion, morals, and politics. If we look at... Um, I don't know if we look at friendship insofar as we're talking about companionship and somehow in the biological uh, sense of, you know, it's increasing the likelihood of your survival by having mates around you. Mm -hmm. uh, I can see how morals, religion and politics might deter people from being together. Now, I can see that clearly because I suppose you need to have a, a, a de defined uh, position. Either you believe in this or you don't believe in that. Either mm. you think, um, you know, uh, this is sinful or this is not sinful. It's it's very rigid. Um, yeah. Whereas it increases the, the impact of of um, not being friends with someone, of not wanting this person in your group just because they like. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I I don't really see it much. I think it doesn't say much that. Um, that music isn't. I, th I think for I think I, I what I'm trying to say is I suppose it's very it's striking to me that music is there to such a large effect uh, yeah. compared to all the I would for instance uh, of the pillars uh, natal area current location and ethnicity I personally would have thought ethnicity um, is uh, it's much bigger than 
um, than any other thing because I don't know I think it, it, it's like an umbrella term, mm. uh, you know, and uh, it it involves right, language, right. it involves cultural values that are I would come under that. Yeah, so I would have thought. I mean, I don't do this myself particularly, but it's if you see someone of a different ethnicity, you have to figure more things out. You have mm-hmm. to figure whether both both share a language, and if you do, do you share the same values? Would I be? Ju- and it goes back. It, it's really it connects really. Um, it connects immediately with morals and religion and politics. Um, yeah. Whereas maybe that's very- maybe that's another point. Like, how do you ask someone? whether ethnicity matters more than morals if they're all kind of connected. Um, yeah, precisely. I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, it seems that, obviously, um, to, I don't know, to, to not be friends with someone just based on their ethnicity being they look different, I don't... I'm not sure. I mean, I find that very difficult to... I mean, I'm sure it happens a lot, I find it very difficult to justify with help, like they just look different. Mm-hmm. Um, because by that anyone looks different. By that talking that someone has a beard, someone has hair, someone doesn't have hair. I mean, you can't really... Um, it's because of... I think it's because of all the subtext of ethnicity, if anything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it could Which maybe is captured by political religion and music. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, uh, I think if... if if any, if if we had to tattoo our religion uh, in our face, and um, it being similar to ethnicity, I think people would be less. You would see someone being like, "Oh, you know, a Catholic. I'm not befriending that." Or, "Oh, this. I'm not befriending that," because you already know, and you know, it's not just the religion; it's all that goes with it. Is the morals and all this and that. All these things. So maybe, perhaps, whereas music is, it's just music. What does it say? I mean, it doesn't really. What what really informs? I yeah. can't think of much. I mean, I'm I'm reminded of those old uh, British dinner values where you don't talk about religion and politics at the table. Oh, um, in in Latin. Same. Okay. Same thing. Yeah. It's the same rule. Yeah, you want yeah. to maintain a friend. All religion or politics. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. So maybe, yeah, I mean, there's some kind of intrinsic understanding that these are very important topics. And because they're important, discussing them so often may not be the most conducive thing yeah. towards group cohesion, maybe. Paradoxically, actually. Okay. Um, I think that's all we have to say on this. Would you like to add anything, Jay? No, oh, no, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think I'll have. Well, Jay, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, oh, for being I'm part of this. I'm very glad. I'm sorry. I appreciate your, your uh, invitation as usual. Um, it's been very, very nice as always. And uh, hopefully it won't be the last time. No. And thank you to everyone for listening. And make sure to keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. And goodbye. Bye-bye.